today we are in a massive global energy crisis and it's being compared to the energy crisis of the 1970s. We've seen today that oil prices have skyrocketed to over $100 per barrel. And of course, a lot of this energy crisis has been fueled by the Western sanctions on Russia. Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of both oil and gas. And of course, the U.S. has sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, which are two other very significant producers and exporters of oil and gas. So this is an energy crisis that was largely created by U.S. foreign policy. And today I have my close friend and colleague, Aaron Good. Aaron is the author of the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, which is a history of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state. So we also want to talk about um, the OPEC crisis in 1973, the OPEC oil embargo and the consequences of that, and the echoes that we see today with debt and with uh, depreciating currencies against the U.S. dollar and inflation and stagflation. So we've seen a lot of analysts compare the energy crisis today to the 1973 oil embargo that OPEC had. And the conventional narrative about this 1973 oil crisis is that it was a response by the Persian Gulf monarchy, specifically by Saudi Arabia, in protest to Israel's Yom Kippur War with several different Arab nations and, of course, the U.S.-backed Israel. And the narrative is that after the Yom Kippur War, Saudi Arabia responded with this oil embargo of Israel and the Western powers that sponsored Israel. But you, Aaron, have actually done a lot of research on this, and you have argued that that narrative actually is very misleading, and that in many ways it was actually the U.S. government that wanted the OPEC oil embargo. Let's not forget that quite literally overnight, when the OPEC oil embargo was declared, the price of oil more than doubled. And then it later, in the later 1970s, with the Volcker shock, the price of oil skyrocketed once again to over $100 per barrel. And I did a recent episode, a recent um, discussion with Radhika Desai, a brilliant geopolitical economist, and we talked about the similarities and differences between today and the third world debt crisis in the 1980s. And of course, the OPEC oil embargo in the 70s, which led to skyrocketing oil prices, and the Volcker shock, which led to U.S. Federal Reserve interest rates to skyrocket to almost 20%, which meant that countries that had their external debt denominated in U.S. dollars and had their currencies devalued against the U.S. dollar were trapped in all of this unpayable debt. So that historical episode was very important. The 73 oil lockout, the Volcker shock, and the 80s debt crisis. Um, Professor Radhika Desai argued that there's a lot of differences today, that it's not, it's not exactly like the 1980s. People can check out my interview with her to get her view. But anyway, the point is I wanted to have all that context here to, to come back to you, Aaron, and, and say, you know, indisputably, that historical moment was monumental in shifting the global political and economic system. It came right after the end of the convertibility of the U.S. dollar to gold. In 1971, Richard Nixon took the U.S. dollar off of gold, which meant that it was a freely floating fiat currency. And it, people have suggested that maybe that's one of the reasons that the U.S. wanted this oil lockout but that OPEC led. Of course, Saudi Arabia was a U.S. ally. It was a way 
right at the time when the U.S. pressured Saudi Arabia to sell its oil in dollars, creating the petrodollar system, it was a way to strengthen the U.S. dollar as a, as a floating fiat currency and to increase international demand for U.S. dollars. So that was my long introduction for historical context for people who don't know. What is your take on the 73 OPEC oil embargo and what do people get wrong about it? Well, it is this whole angle of the, the dollar, really the rise of the current system that we live under, which I'll, I sometimes call the Rumpelstiltskin dollar regime because of the power that it gives the U.S., which is to just create instead of having, uh, you know, being restrained by your gold reserves, the U.S. can create as many dollars as it wants. And the rest of the country, the countries in the world take it and use it for international trade because that's the position that the U.S. has. But it was a change from the Bretton Woods system, which existed until 1968 or 71. It officially ended. Uh, and that had the dollar at a 35, $35 for an ounce of gold. And the U.S., because it was spending too much money on military, especially, uh, started running into problems with this. It was a problem under Eisenhower. Kennedy made it a huge part of his foreign policy. He even told people in 61, I'm not sending soldiers into Vietnam because it's going to explode the deficit. Uh, the U.S. balance of payments position, and I'm trying to like end this gold drain, uh, in, you know, periodically. So, and finally, Kennedy's policies by the end of 1963, for the first time, the U.S. was actually in gold surplus, and it had really shored up the system. Uh, and in October of '63, there's a you know memo saying that, like all our plans are to be withdrawing from Vietnam uh, by the 1965. So that doesn't happen. Instead, you get the Vietnam War. And military spending basically busts the U.S. balance of payments position. And it becomes clear by 1968 that the U.S. is going to lose all of its gold because it's been spending so much on the war. These dollars are piling up in other countries' central banks and they want gold for it. And so the U.S. finally says, we're going to shut the, this down. In 1971, officially, they shut the, the gold window. And for they, then they need to negotiate a new international system. Uh, and they're in the process of that. But that was really more of a delay, sort of a holding uh, exercise of the U.S. because while they're negotiating how the IMF and special drawing rights might be used to somehow get this new system, and it won't be just the, about the dollar, uh, the, you had the oil crisis uh, being ginned up. And it was talked about by people at like this Bilderberg conference beforehand, which is like kind of a CIA established thing. I think it was Marshall Plan funding that was used to help establish this group, or at least the Prince Henry was one of the conduits for um, Marshall Fund CIA dollars that were like secret in a way. And uh, he set up Bilderberg. So go figure. But the result is by 1973, the outcome is you do have the oil, the beginning of the oil crisis. And the minister, the oil minister of the Saudis said, yeah, I went to the Shah and he asked me, why are you against this? The U.S. wants this. Henry Kissinger asked me to uh, to raise the price this way. So, the, it, you know, the, the Shah, the Saudis are saying this. The other, one of the other main actors is Suharto, who has, uh, is the head of Indonesia. The U.S. installed him. He's another one of these big oil producers during this time. They, they basically agreed that uh, they would. And it was also in response to other, you know, incentives, which is like an increase in the price of grain and so on. And so they raised the price of oil and yada, yada. But really, the U.S. approved it. And it was to deal with the U.S. problem of the dollar overhang. And all the main countries were allies of the U.S. that were really behind it. Even the Israeli side is one of the belligerents in the Yom Kippur War. Israel is the, a U.S. ally. The Saudis are a U.S. ally. Egypt, who was a participant in that war, was a U.S. ally. 
And then the oil producing countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Indonesia especially, are U.S. puppet states more or less. So the idea that like, oh, those Arabs are just sticking it to us. and But it's like the U.S. always told those countries what to do and even installed their governments, you know, pretty much, especially in Iran and Indonesia. So, you know, the, the main story is ridiculous. I'd love to take credit for being the person who like who discovered all this, but there's older books by uh, like Robert Sherrill, a book called The Oil Follies. And then a guy named John Blair, he wrote a book called The Control of Oil. And they lay all this out. Uh, the Guardian, there's a Guardian article that interviewed the Saudi oil minister at the time that tells his side of the story. And that was the way that it got dealt with. So by the time you get this oil crisis uh, that really takes place and it starts you know, moving all these excess dollars to these Arab states or to these oil producing states, um, this is the, how the U.S. solves the dollar gap problem. So the, the dollars that had been in these countries' banks and they wanted gold for them, instead they get spent on oil imports. And then the oil producing countries have all these dollars and the U.S. says you can either cycle these into petrodollars or put them in Western banks. And that's what they do with all these petrodollars. At that point, those loans are made to developing countries that are not doing so well because of the um, oil crisis. You know, it's like making it more expensive to run oil. And then they're able to export less because the U.S. economy isn't doing as well. So they start taking out loans basically created by all of these petrodollars in Western inst financial institutions. Now, the, the final part of this, of all this chicanery is Paul Volcker raises interest rates really high and it's harmful to the U.S. economy, but it's devastating to these countries in the global south and also in Eastern Europe. You know, Poland in particular, Yugoslavia, they took out loans during this time period. They um, are, because they had taken out these loans to help deal with the problems of the 70s, um, when the interest rates get really high combined with the economic problems, you know, less trade, uh, this is a catastrophe, it's the debt crisis. And then all of these countries have to basically submit to IMF restructuring, which allows the US uh, and the countries in the US empire and other capitalists who are under the umbrella of the US empire to, to take over uh, developing economies and really wreck these countries and plunder them. And this is, this is the source of America's super prosperity, a big part of it in the 80s and 90s that the U.S. has the ability to make as much money as it wants uh, out of thin air. Other countries accept it. Other countries can't earn enough dollars to uh, be in this system without you know, running into worse and worse debt. So they have to submit to the IMF uh, plans to basically restructure their economies and allow for more plunder from uh, the West. And so the, it was a very predatory move, and it was more or less like an economic war of uh, Wall Street the United States against the world. And uh, they were able to pull it off because they owned all of the oil produced, all of the oil producing centers were in the US orbit and could be told what to do by the United States. That's not the case today. And that's where we, this is a big part of why we may see a shift in the whole system because A, the US doesn't control the oil producing regions of the world the way it did before. Not only is Russia a huge producer, but the Saudis are like basically telling the US to piss off uh, as we saw recently. And additionally, these other countries that may end up having problems because of energy and other economic issues could potentially go to China for uh, for help and become closer to China rather than having to deal just with the U.S. and the IMF and all of its dictates. So we're in a we're in a, a shift similar to what we saw in the 70s and 80s 
well, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? It's really not completed until Reagan, a, a year or so into Reagan's presidency. But the difference we're seeing now is I don't believe the U.S. has the fundamental control over the structure of the international economy uh, it, to uh, uh, reproduce its victories of the of this era. I, I think that we may well be seeing the end of, of U.S. unipolarity as a result of this. And a lot of it comes down to kind of boring economic issues and, bound, and payments issues and energy costs and things like that. But uh, the, the U.S. is... It does. We, the U.S. doesn't seem to be in a strong position, and by trying to isolate Russia and failing, and isolate China and failing, the U.S. may actually be hastening its own demise, even as it desperately tries to hold on to its empire. And that desperation is why the nuclear issue. We can tie these things together. Uh, these things are related. These things are are the precarity of the U.S. hold over the international political economy is the key structural reality that should make us very concerned about the prospect of nuclear war because they really the US really is fighting to hold on to uh, being the world being world history's most powerful and richest empire. Very well said. And I really think that the 71 Nixon shock, the 73 OPEC oil embargo and then of course the Volcker shock starting around 79 going up to the third world debt crisis, which really began in Mexico in 1982 in Argentina. And then it spilled over into Thailand and Brazil and many other countries. I think that decade, those events were, was really a watershed moment. Maybe you can even say, you know, Peter Dale Scott might call it a kind of deep event, a series of deep events, especially when you know the role of people like Henry Kissinger and elements of the U.S. national security state involved in some of these events. And of course, the creation of the petrodollar, which came at the same time. That is such an important historical period that is not very well known, but you can't understand the world that we're living in today and the collapse of that economic order that was created. You know, we can talk about Bretton Woods, which we still live with elements of Bretton Woods, specifically with the IMF and the World Bank, right? But actually, the IMF and the World Bank's balance sheet right today is lower than it was at that peak. The peak really was in the 90s when all of those countries in the third world debt crisis, especially after the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, they had no alternative. The U.S. was the unipolar hegemon and a country that had balance of payments issues basically had no choice unless it wanted to be under a total blockade like the DPRK or Cuba, right? There are a few exceptions, but you know, even I constantly talk about the, the classic example of South Africa. You had this glorious struggle against the apartheid regime led by the uh, you know, ANC and leaders who were very revolutionary and leftists and even communists like Nelson Mandela, who was allegedly a member of the Communist Party of South Africa. And yet when they come to power and overthrow this colonial apartheid regime, they have no option but to impose neoliberalism, right? Not because he was an ideological neoliberal, but because that was the international political and economic architecture at the time. And all of that is coming apart at the seams today. I mean, you talked about one of the key issues, not only with the rise of this multipolar world with new financial institutions. China has banks that are lending um, for in infrastructure projects and even balance of payment issues. Um, the BRICS system, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but also Saudi Arabia saying that it's going to potentially list its oil in the Chinese yuan. Now, 
Saddam Hussein, one of the reasons, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but one of the reasons for the 2003 war on Iraq is that Saddam was selling his oil in euros, refusing to sell them in dollars because of the Western sanctions and you know the oil for food program. He created this scheme using like euros and Western banks to, to sell oil in, in return for the oil for food program. Of course, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Again, I'm not saying this is the only reason. There, there's never one single reason. It's not like the war in Syria was only about a pipeline, although that was a factor, right? But Muammar Gaddafi, one of the reasons for the NATO war that destroyed Libya and murdered him was he was trying to create a gold-backed Pan-African currency. Like, it's not just some like crazy tinfoil, tinfoil hat idea that the U.S. empire fears threats to dollar hegemony. No, that's a very real political factor. That's one of the ways that the U.S. empire can maintain its hegemony is through the power of the U.S. dollar, which is still used in a majority or at least in a plurality of international trade. It's in, the, uh, it's in the, the longer telegram, which is the Atlantic Council's manifesto on China. That's one of their in their executive summary. One of the bullet points is we must not allow the U.S. dollar to be replaced as the global reserve currency. So they even their mid-level uh, flunkies understand that now in the U.S. in the U.S. blob of foreign policy or whatever. Yeah, I, I recently wrote an article at Multipolarista about a an IMF report that was warning about the. Uh, the use of the U.S. dollar in the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world and how the you, the holding of U.S. dollars is at the lowest point in over 20 years. And that and then it, that continues to decrease. And then you have the rise of what they call non-conventional or non-traditional currencies, specifically the Chinese yuan. So this is all a huge part of this international financial and economic and political architecture. But I'm wondering if you think that that... That moment in the 1970s, you know, you, with the this creation of the petrodollar, the oil lockout in the 80s, I'm wondering if you think that maybe we're in a moment today that could be sim similar. Of course, I'm never trying to ask you to tell the future, but that moment in the 70s leading up to the Volcker shock and the debt crisis is really what led to the international dominance of neoliberalism. Like I said, it wasn't just adopted willingly by countries around the world. It was adopted because they had no other choice. And you had the rise of structural adjustment programs. It was it was the third world debt crisis that led to the IMF actually coming in, because let's not forget all of those petrodollars that were recycled into U.S. banks during the in the 1970s, when the oil prices were skyrocketing, those dollars were recycled into U.S. banks and then they were given in low, extremely low interest loans to the global south for infrastructure projects. And then, of course, when they were unable to pay back in the 1980s because of the Volcker shock and the high interest rates and the devaluation of their currencies against the dollar and the overvalue, the overvaluing of the U.S. dollar, what happened? The IMF stepped in in order to negotiate on behalf of all of the U.S. commercial banks. And then that's what led to the IMF becoming hegemonic because in the future, from the 1980s forward, any commercial bank in the U.S. that gave loans to a foreign country told that foreign country that they had to be approved by the IMF, that they had to have their macroeconomic conditions approved by the IMF, which means structural adjustment. Do you think that maybe today we could be seeing another kind of deep event like that that leads to the creation of a new kind of financial architecture? 
Well, I, I think that it's a structural event. Um, the Peter's definition of a structural deep event is, is that it, it comes from a, a part of the clandestine state uh, and results in greater secrecy and so on and deals with uh, covert operations that were already in existence. But I think that the broader idea that this is a kind of a deep, a deep political phenomenon, something that is not understood and is typically suppressed rather than discussed, you could definitely uh, have an, a concept of an economic deep event and economic deep events. And uh, the, the, the issue, the collapse of the Bretton Woods you know, the, of the dollar and the replacement with this Rumpelstiltskin dollar regime is a kind of rolling deep event of sorts. That's more or less what I lay out in, in American Exception. Uh, and I think I bring some new things to the table and I tie it back to the, to the creation of the military industrial complex too, uh, right after World War II. But um, as, as far as where it, it is going and what we're going to see, it does look like it's either going to be a shift towards multipolarity uh, and, per, and some, some kind of international law or a system to manage things more close, more closely in line with international law than we had before once things shake out. Um, and that the U.S. may have to dial back its uh, plans to be the global hegemon. It looks like Europe is headed for a terrible winter. And it, I don't see how the Ukraine situation, I think that it's going to redound to the detriment of the United States and um, that it's going to bring Russia and China together more so. And the fact that China is also having to deal with the U.S. trying to do something similar in Taiwan, you know, bait the, it seems like the U.S. is trying to, to bait the, chi the Chinese into doing something reckless and dangerous with Taiwan. You know, maybe that was why they provoked them so much with Ukraine, the thought that if Russia just went in and rolled over Ukraine and occupied them, maybe they'll get into a longer war after the fact. But that Russia would look so bad that you could you could really recast them as a pariah that countries shouldn't do business with. But Russia didn't do that, so maybe that's why Russia didn't do that. Maybe they've been outplayed by the Russians, who you know, who, not taking the bait, but also not allowing Ukraine to become this full-on NATO fortress. I don't really know uh, exactly what they were saying because so these things take place at a higher level that I don't have access to. Obviously, I don't even know what the U.S. government is doing, much less Russia. But I, I don't see how the U.S., if they don't have a nuclear weapon, that they're going to be able to reverse the decline of U.S. hegemony because all of these countries in the global south and really these countries in Europe, everybody has the, the, the populations uh, have every incentive to want to break out of uh, U.S. domination. And it's it, this Europe, it wasn't always this way because they kind of enjoyed a bubble of prosperity in part because of their being a privileged sector of neocolonialism, you know, that the U.S. basically absorbed all of their colonial holdings in other countries and their invested capital in other countries, and they sort of were the guardian of that. And so Europe is able to be artificially prosperous based on exploiting the global south, so similar to the U.S. But now with these energy problems coming up, it's, it's going to become clear to Europe, I think, that the U.S. Uh, US hegemony is no longer in their interests. Um, and then where do they go from there? The main overriding goal, or one of the major ones, of you know, going back decades and decades, really even before World War II, it's a part of why World War I was even fought, um, is this fear, that the, the British and U.S. fear of Russia and Germany being allied. I mean, they, they hated this idea 
It was a prominent German statesman in the interwar period who was uh, essentially assassinated for advocating such things. You see that they just blew up the um, pipeline in, uh, you know, the, the, the supplied oil or, you know, oil from Russia to the Germans for German industry. I mean, they really are, are freaked out about this, but the logic is totally, it makes perfect sense. It's just the, there's so much propaganda in Europe and Germany and everywhere else that's, that's made to support this, the imperial status quo. But I don't, as things get bad, there's going to be more and more people saying, this isn't working out for us anymore. What's the U.S. going to do at that point? I mean, I, I think that Europe is headed for a rude awakening, and we're already seeing more protests about this. And the global South has not joined in with them in this quest. So who's really going to even support the U.S. through through this as we go forward? I don't know. I mean, if the U.S. can pull a rabbit out of its hat and save its position as the global hegemon, I mean, what, that, then that will, that I will be surprised, but I, I don't see how they can do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't either. I think, you know, who, who will be going along with them? It's going to be the countries that are economically dependent on them, like Europe, uh, potentially maybe Japan, maybe South Korea, which are still militarily occupied by the U.S. Although even Japan, actually, the new prime minister of Japan just had a meeting with a top Chinese diplomat and pledged that he wanted to boost uh, Japanese integration with China, which is a pretty significant development. Of course, this comes after uh, Olaf Scholz took this trip to China, where he said that there's a multipolar world and that Germany doesn't want to be dependent on China, but doesn't want to break relations with China. And that was him trying to show that he's independent. Although at the end of the day, if Germany is going to commit economic suicide and rely on extremely expensive US LNG, then he doesn't really have many economic options. Um, I mean, how now, many U.S. troops are in Germany right now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tens of thousands. So this gets me to the final issue that I wanted to raise today in our discussion, which is a historical event that I think you could also consider kind of an, an economic deep event. And that is the 2014 oil crash. I want to show a, a graph here of oil prices since the 1960s, because I think what's interesting is if you look at the prices of certain commodities in international markets, especially oil, you can kind of get a, a historical map of major deep events or historical events. So in the 1960s, of course, this, this map is crude oil prices, and it's adjusted for inflation, of course. And if you look at the 1960s, adjusted for inflation in today's dollars, oil prices were pretty low around 20 to $30. And then of course, in 73, you have the OPEC oil lockout and oh, quite literally overnight, oil prices skyrocket from lower, from below 30 to over $60. And then you have the Volcker shock around 79, oil prices skyrocketed to in, in early 1980, $144 per barrel. And then throughout that period, as the US gradually lower some of those very high Fed interest rates, you have oil prices, they lower a bit, although they're still very high. And then you can fast forward and you can go to the 2008-2009 financial crash, oil prices skyrocket once again. And I should point out that in the 2000s, you had this major boom of commodities. And that was actually one of the reasons that allowed countries in the global south, especially in Latin America and Venezuela and Brazil and Ecuador under Correa and Lula and Chavez, they were able to ride that wave of the commodities boom and, and fund social programs to fight poverty. I mean, actually using that money for the first time to benefit 
their own population. And then you have in the 2010s, for the most part, you still had very high oil prices, but then something happened in 2014 and you saw a massive plummeting of oil prices that never really recovered. And then of course, in 2020, you have the COVID pandemic and oil prices skyrocketed because of the decrease in demand. And that brings us to today with the proxy war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion in February, and prices skyrocketed to up to a peak of around $110 a barrel. And it's it's fluctuated mostly around there, a little lower, but 80, 80 to $100. What I want to talk about is a historical event that's not that well known, which is here in 2014. Around September 2014, oil prices went from $125 a barrel and they crashed to $60 a barrel. And then a few months later, they, they crashed to $40 a barrel. And this is not just the vicissitudes of the market, right? We, like, there's this idea that neoliberal economists have that like, you know, the, the free market, you just have to listen to the market, right? You, I, I listen to all these like uh, financial analysts on YouTube and they always talk about what the market says. The market says this, the market says that. And it's like, no, the market is, is not some, you know, uh, uh, omniscient, uh, you know, uh, thing with its own spirit or whatever. Like it, it, it actually is responsive to geopolitics. And this reminded me actually of a Twitter thread that I remember engaging you with you in back in, uh, 2021. And this was with uh, one of our mutual friends, our hidden history, who unfortunately, I, I guess, deactivated to detox from social media, but good for him. Yeah. But, um, you had pointed out the reason I wanted to get up this Twitter thread is I think you said it very well that if humanity survives the end of U.S. dominance, this episode, and, and you were talking about this 2014 oil crash, will be recognized as one of the most irresponsible acts of the crumbling empire. And I pointed out that it's not that well known, but this 2014 oil crash was orchestrated by the Obama administration. And there were articles in the time at, in Reuters. And, and also the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times about how John Kerry, who was U.S. Secretary of State, took this trip to Saudi Arabia, ironically, on 9-11, on September 11, 2014. And they, they were just talking about oil prices. And basically, this is when King Abdullah was still in power before he died. And this is before we had King Salman and then his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's now officially in charge, and he's clearly much more independent and is much more interested in, in playing, you know, China and Russia against the U.S. And but anyway, this is back when King Abdullah was in power. And what happened is that, according to these media reports, the U.S. made an agreement with Saudi Arabia to overproduce oil, to massively overproduce, which, of course, drops the price of oil in the global market. And this was in response to a few things. One. This is right after the U.S. and Europe imposed sanctions on Russia over the annexation of Crimea, which, of course, was in response to the U.S. orchestrated coup in Ukraine in 2014. And, there, of course, there was a democratic referendum, and, and even Western pollsters have admitted that over 90% of people in Crimea who were historically ethnically Russian and spoke Russian wanted to join the Russian Federation. So one of the targets of this oil crash was Russia, a major producer a major uh, exporter of oil. So the US and Europe imposed sanctions on Russia as part of the first hit. And then the, the double tap strike is they crashed the price of oil to try to crash the Russian economy, to 
try to bring about regime change. That didn't work, obviously. Another target was Venezuela. Hugo Chavez died in 2013 after contracting a very suspicious, very aggressive form of cancer. I've talked to many Venezuelan government officials who thought that he was targeted with some kind of advanced technology, a weapon. He dies in 2013 after very rapidly developing cancer. And then there's an election and Maduro comes in in this narrow margin. The U.S. at first refuses to acknowledge his victory. And then in 2014, they initiate a coup attempt backed by the U.S. and Venezuela right around the same time using the so-called guarimbas which are these violent barricades to try to paralyze the country, which were then repeated in Venezuela in 2017 and in Nicaragua in 2018. So Venezuela also never recovered economically from that oil crash in 2014. And then in 2014, the Obama administration imposes sanctions on Venezuela. And then in 2015, the Obama administration declares Venezuela an extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States and leads to more and more sanctions. And then another country that was also targeted by this oil crash in 2014 was Brazil. Brazil was a major oil exporter and it relied on the Workers' Party government relied on oil to fund its social programs. And this leads up to the 2016 oil, uh, or the 2016 um, soft coup against President Dilma Rousseff. But I remember in 2014 with the crash of commodity prices. Because, of course, when oil prices crash, other commodity prices also tend to crash. They go along, you know, they tend to go along with each other. And this led to massive protests against the Workers' Party government in Brazil. And looking back at those protests, they were very suspicious. And they were clearly, they had elements of like the, the um, Brazilian oligarchy, the people who would become Bolsonaristas. And also, I think it's, it's fair to say that, to speculate that U.S. intelligence was involved in those protests in 2014 against Dilma Rousseff, which set the stage for the 2016 coup against Dilma Rousseff and the series of coups that led to the election of Bolsonaro and the imprisonment of Lula. So anyway, the, the point I'm getting at here is this is something that I've thought about a lot over the years. I've always wanted to like do an article or even a book, a short book about that 2014 moment, because I think the 2014 moment was similar to the 1973 moment of the oil, the OPEC oil lockout. And that the U.S. was trying to, and then also Iran. This is also when the U.S. is trying to pressure Iran to join the nuclear deal. And by crashing the price of oil, the U.S. can pressure Iran economically, which whose economy is relying on oil exports, to come to the table to sign the Joint Comprehensive Nuclear Plan, the JCPOA. So the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So anyway, I mean, I've kind of answered my question already, but... The point I wanted to get at by spelling that historical episode out is that it seems very clear to me that in 2014, the U.S. intentionally crashed the price of oil by using Saudi Arabia to overproduce oil. And then it did so targeting Russia, targeting Venezuela, targeting Brazil and targeting Iran. I'm curious if you have further thoughts on that and if you think that maybe that's another kind of deep economic event that's comparable to the 73 oil lockout. Oh, yeah, I think that this was part of a, a, a plot, a U.S. policy at the, at the time to weaken it, this. It's, it's really a, a broad and ambitious plan, and I, I think it didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve. But it's easy to get the logic of it. Um, as you point out, you have, uh, I mean, the oil prices are higher if the supply is higher. I mean, sorry, it's, the supply is high, the price is low, and vice versa. If the supply is, is, is low, the price goes high. So 
the U.S., all of those things, among the ways that this happened was, as you point out, uh, U.S. officials visiting Saudi Arabia with that old king on the throne still at the time, and they um, really lower prices. And there was actually, and then they, they, they agree, they say, okay, we'll lower the prices. Although that part was mostly left out of the coverage. It was mentioned sometimes, but oftentimes the coverage of why the Saudis were doing this was all, was, um, it was explained. Syria. Well, right it was, Syria. It, it was explained also as a way to capture market share because the U.S. had just brought a whole lot of oil online. And this was, this is the part that I write about in the book where I think I actually do add something based on a couple of sources and I don't flesh it out extremely well. But I think it's one of the things I put in the book that I haven't really seen elsewhere, which is that this was a geopolitical strategy brought, born in part by quantitative easing. So it's the, the way that quantitative easing allowed all of this capital to be floating around. It goes into, it's channeled into fracking operations that are not, not very lucrative, especially as the price of oil goes down. And so the Saudis are saying, oh, well, we're just doing this to... Uh, try to make sure we get market share in the long run from these U.S. producers. Well, why did Kerry go over there and encourage them to do that policy if it's really aimed at harming U.S. oil producers? That doesn't make any sense. So really what I would say happened is the U.S. put a full court press on crashing the oil price uh, using its leverage with the Saudis saying, keep pumping, pump, pump, pump. Oh, and now we will also pump a lot of oil as well because we created the capacity to extract a lot of oil in ways that don't even really make sense based on the market and the actual value of oil and how much it costs to extract. But we don't care because we can create credit out of thin air and allow that to be channeled into investment in hydroelectric uh, fracking or whatever, or fracking. And uh, so they could they could basically turn the U.S. into a big oil producer with using all of the, mag the, the magic of the Rumpelstiltskin money machine and quantitative easing, which is essentially just print money printing in different ways, different ways of just creating money and buying up debts and improving the balance sheets of banks and so on by taking on uh, other assets so that they have more liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, this was a, this was a part of that story. And in Brazil, I, I would have to guess that a, a major part of it is, was not just all of the vaguely social socialist or social democratic policies of Rousseff, which he continued from Lula, you know, but also the issue of Petrobras, the uh, Brazilian oil company, which they've been trying to privatize for for ages, right? So I think this was that was part of the gambit. They're thinking we could we could wreck this Brazilian leftist leftist ish government, and then eventually affect the privatization of Petrobras in the long term. We can weaken Iran. Uh, it, we can weaken Russia. We can weaken Venezuela by doing this. And so I believe that that was absolutely a kind of economic warfare. When they really decided to step it up against some enemies of the U.S. that they had perceived, which are like what the, the Brazilian people who want to have some oil revenues and the, the Venezuelans who'd rather, you know, build homes than make standard oil more money in, in you know, profits or whatever. Like these are the, the enemies and uh, th that they used this as a weapon. It was a way to, for the U.S. to try to, as they did in the 70s. Uh, use control over oil and the global financial system as a as a means to uh, strengthen the U.S. empire. But I don't think it succeeded, you know, and I think that it's the, what's happening in Ukraine and how it's kind of like risky and dangerous and it seems headed for a kind of disaster in Ukraine 
it's just the desperation. It's like these other methods of trying to reproduce U.S. hegemony perpetually have failed. You know, the Project for New American Century, the 9-11 wars, you know, the quest for full spectrum dominance, the Arab Spring Wars, trying to remake the Middle East that way. These all failed. Uh, we're stuck occupying part of Syria totally illegitimately, and we just shrug about it. And this Ukraine war is a total disaster. And it's pretty hard not to admit that the U.S. has really wrecked this country since getting involved there in 2014. But, you know, underlying these are the international political economy and the, the exorbitant privilege of controlling energy and finance and really food as well, which the U.S. has enjoyed and is a big part of its, you know, the imperial system it's created. Uh, and it's it's kind of fallen apart. Yeah, this this whole historical episode of 2014 is so important, I think. And you're right that when it was reported in most media reports, they talk about it as if Kerry was going to Riyadh just to talk about Syria. And what's hilarious is the argument made, you know, the New York Times had an article about this, and they said that Kerry went to, to Damascus, uh, excuse me, Kerry went to Riyadh to talk about Damascus, to talk about Syria, and to pressure Saudi Arabia to, uh, in, to increase its oil supply. And in return, Saudi Arabia pressured the U.S. to send more support to the, the so-called moderate rebels in Syria, as if the U.S. needed to be convinced by Saudi Arabia to send more weapons to the Salafi jihadist head choppers trying to overthrow the Syrian government. I mean, so clearly it was a very suspicious meeting, but... It also reminded me of this interesting documentary that Al Jazeera produced back in 2019 about Saudi Aramco. And of course, this is at the moment where Saudi Qatari relations are at the worst they've ever been. This is after the Trump administration pressured Saudi Arabia to blockade Qatar. And, you know, Al Jazeera is just churning out anti-Saudi propaganda. So we, we understand why Qatar produced this documentary. But it's a very interesting documentary. I'd actually recommend it. It's called Saudi Aramco, The Company and the State. And there's this very interesting part where they have this guy named Jim Crane. And they just describe him as an expert on energy policy and geopolitics. And he kind of just spelled it. I remember I was watching this a few years ago when I was thinking about the 2014 oil crash and the U.S. hand behind it. And he makes these comments here where he just confirms exactly what we were talking about, about how one of the key aspects of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which I guess you could say has really deteriorated in the past few years. But one of the key points is that the U.S. can use oil as a geopolitical weapon by pressuring Saudi Arabia, which until recently was just a total U.S. client regime, to overproduce oil to crash the price of oil in the global market. He says it very clearly. I'm just going to play this, this clip here. It's very interesting. I think I should have... Um, yeah, I have the audio here. So let's listen to these comments here production capacity that they don't use okay exactly. so no spare capacity for today Saudi Arabia here we go addressing the global market's needs for reliable supplies of petroleum Saudi Arabia is the keystone in OPEC it is the big dog it's the ringleader if you will uh, uh, within OPEC OPEC members maintain a little bit here and there um, none has more than 1 million barrels per day of spare oil production capacity that, that I know of, but maintains that that kind of level of spare capacity uh, at, you know, as, as a policy. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco typically maintain, you know, a million, two million barrels, two million barrels a, 
a day of oil production capacity that they don't use, okay? So no profit-oriented firm would ever do this, right? You wouldn't invest all the billions in developing oil fields and pipelines and storage facilities and production infrastructure, and then just leave it dormant. Saudi Aramco has done it at the behest of the, the Saudi state. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the key aspect in the Saudi-U.S. partnership, Aramco's ability to bring more oil production online and its willingness to cut back uh, at times when markets are oversupplied. It's kind of the crux of the, the U.S. and Saudi strategic partnership. Saudi Arabia. So that, I mean, I remember that's from 2019, but I remember seeing that and I was like, well, there you go. Confirming exactly what we've been saying that Saudi Arabia historically has had this possibility to overproduce or underproduce to change the price of oil in the global market at the orders of the United States. And that, that is how the US empire was able to use oil as a geopolitical weapon. Although now that's changed. The situation has fundamentally shifted. And the fact that one, Saudi Arabia has a leader who apparently is not just a complete US puppet, not that I'm praising MBS, you know, as some great leader. He's, you know, he's got so much infinite blood in his hands from the war in Yemen, which ironically, the US pushed him into over, I mean, waging for these since 2015. But, uh, you know, the point is that Saudi Arabia has always played such a key role in this U.S. imperial system. And the fact that the U.S. could be losing Saudi Arabia, it's, I don't think it's going to become an enemy, but as, an, as a, an asset that the U.S. can boss around and that Saudi is potentially becoming an independent geopolitical player, it takes off the possibility of the U.S. to control the price of oil in the global market and if Saudi Arabia starts selling its oil in the yuan, even if it does still continue selling it in the, in the dollar as well, if oil becomes diversified in, in global markets and it's listed in the yuan, it's already being basically uh, sold and bought in the, in the Russian ruble because Russia has set up the scheme to force countries that buy oil and gas from it to pay in rubles using the Gazprom bank. And... I mean, that, that's a fundamental shift, and that is one of the fundamental pillars that U.S. hegemony was predicated on. Yeah, um, John Perkins wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and he also uh, goes into detail about this and the way that the oil thing functions. And he was, a, he was in an interesting place, a position where his job was to go around in the 70s uh, to go to these third world you know, developing countries and say, take out this loan from the World Bank or from whatever, and it'll help you. So his, his he has a he had a role in this system earlier, and the idea was to get these countries to take on take out loans that would not be really repayable. It would get them in debt, and then th that could be used as leverage by the U.S. later on. Um, so he was also. And some people said, "Oh, you're making this up," or whatever. Uh, and I think at some point he was threatened to be sued by like Bechtel or one of these companies. And then he's like, "Well, I have all these documents, and so if you want to do that." Let's let's do it. We'll, you know, discovery will be really interesting. And then there was this old footage of him with Greg Pallast or something back in the 70s or the 80s on public access television or something or public television where they're debating whether this municipality should like take a loan out to like upgrade its electrical grid or something. And Greg Pallast was saying, like, don't do this. This is you're going to be sucking this debt trap, yada, yada. But Perkins was there making that kind of a, a case as a hired you know economic analyst 
So he has he, he does seem to have been doing what he says he was doing. And he also talks about being a part of the Saudi, what he called like the Saudi money laundering deal, which was a way to rearrange where the petrodollars would go in accordance with uh, U.S. geopolitical interests. And part of the leverage that the U.S. had over the Saudis was to say, all right, somebody is out of line or something. One of the oil, one of these oil producing companies is countries is producing more than we would like or they're out of line, something, something. So for whatever reason, just please crash the oil price. And then the Saudis would do that. And when Reagan takes office after the tumultuous 70s and even parts of his term are kind of uh, difficult at first because it's still being hammered out. But the Reaganomics and the miracle of Reaganomics or the economic uh, upswing under Reagan was really it, it, it rested upon uh, interest rates going way down and oil prices also going way down. And these are things that are the president doesn't control these. These are things controlled by the pinnacle of economic power in the United States, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and private the, the, the bankers that pretty much command the Federal Reserve policy. And then oil policy is just the oil majors, how much and the oil majors and the oil producing countries, how much they're going to produce. That's the oil price. So really, Reagan could say, oh, Reaganomics, look, this supply side economics must work because look at how good the economy is doing. But oil prices and interest rates were these two huge things that were really top down. Uh, the deep state essentially is is controlling these these levers. So it's it just shows you how it's a it's not a democratic thing and that we need to understand the way that statecraft operates in this day and age. And um, this this era of or the, or the role that the Saudis play in this is huge. And the you know the draw if you want to understand like why this Khashoggi business even happened, why he's chopping up guys that are friendly to the U.S. and seem to want to reform the the Saudis. Well, they, they have reason to you know by because he's charted some independence. Um, he is not liked by the United States, and Khashoggi was seen as a as an actor uh, who was loyal to these uh, other elements that would could potentially be used to do regime change in Saudi Arabia. So. You know, it's the game. Of, that's how the Game of Thrones is played. If somebody's trying to overthrow your kingdom, you know, chop them up or whatever. I, that's that's not how I handle problems in my life. But I don't. I'm not a monarch of a, you know, oil kingdom. So that's you know that's how it goes. But yet this the, the fact that it's changing and that the Saudis are basically like being publicly defined of the United States. This is just one more piece of evidence or one more data point as we look at the general decline of, of U.S. hegemony. Yeah, you mentioned Khashoggi. I mean, that's a name that constantly comes back, a family name that constantly comes back in, in the discussions that we have, Aaron, because there, it's a family deeply involved in U.S. intelligence circles. Adnan Khashoggi, who was the uncle of Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed. He was the Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi. His uncle, Adnan Khashoggi, was a billionaire arms trafficker. We've talked about him in our interviews he was a CIA agent or asset, at least working closely with the CIA. And I have said publicly, I've gone out on a limb and, and said that I highly suspect that Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, was obviously working with U.S. intelligence as well. He was working in the 1980s in Afghanistan. He was helping to convene the so-called Arab Mujahideen. So the Mujahideen originally started out as Afghans, right? So the Arab Mujahideen were the international Arab volunteers, backed also funded by Osama bin Laden, another CIA asset. And Jamal Khashoggi was working with so-called Arab News, which is a Saudi state media outlet. And he was just doing propaganda on behalf of the Mujahideen. 
and the CIA and Pakistani intelligence, ISI and the Saudi state. And, and then later on, Jamal Khashoggi started working a lot with Mohammed bin Nayef, who was a clear U.S. intelligence asset who worked closely with the U.S. government. And Mohammed bin Nayef was supposed to be the next king, but he was purged by Mohammed bin Salman. And that led to this rivalry. And then you, you had um, the former CIA director, John Brennan, went on MSNBC and he said that Mohammed bin Salman is a cancer in the royal family that needs to be excised in order to go back to our our special relationship with the Saudis. So, I mean, I, I have a whole other podcast and video about all of that, about Khashoggi and, and, and everything. But, you know, that's an, that's one of those names where once you understand how these figures play into U.S. intelligence circles, then you can start understanding what's actually going on behind the scenes and how the killing of Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi, obviously as re reprehensible as it was, I'm not endorsing it, but it was clearly the reason it was so amplified in the Western media 24-7 is one, because Turkey and Qatar were using their soft power to try to amplify this because it was a way of them to uh, geopolitically to get back at at Saudi Arabia over its blockade of Qatar. So they were using their media soft power like Al Jazeera and um, Turkey itself. You know, this was in the Saudi consulate in Turkey where he was killed. And Jamal Khashoggi's wife, his partner, was working with the Turkish government and also with the Qatari monarchy. So they were amplifying it. But also at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that he was a U.S. intelligence asset and Mohammed bin, bin Salman killed a U.S. intelligence asset. And and then this is at the same time when he's getting closer to the Russians. There's that famous uh, video of him high-fiving um, Vladimir Putin. So, And then, of course, there's also the, the Sochi Olympics and all of this. So this is all... The point is that if you want to really understand what's behind all of these stories in, in the, the media, you just have to look at the deep politics and the geopolitics of it all. And that's why I was really grateful that you could come on, Aaron, um, it's always a fun discussion. Any any final thoughts before we conclude? Well, I do. Uh, this is a plug, I guess, but I also think it may be helpful to people. I lay all this out in the book, American Exception in the Deep State, the the way that the U.S. laid the, the financial monetary infrastructure of this U.S. empire and the dirty tricks, you know, the covert operations and so on are, are a part of this tale. They're a major part of the empire that we've created. And uh, it, we need to understand that empires go the way of all empires. The U.S. empire is going to fall. We are part of an empire, and we need to really come to come to grips with what this means. And uh, let's hope that that the the all of the tumultuous years we've been living through that this is going to give rise eventually to a multipolar system, and that this may offer good chances for American domestic politics. To be improved also because this regime is really the the infinite money that the oligarchy has in the united states is why they're able to totally dominate domestic politics too and if this changes and america becomes a normal country it may cause some economic hardships in a while but it's also more hopeful uh, i don't I, I feel like the u.s empire is the greatest threat to human existence at this point and that if wishing for its end is what you should do if you are an American who cares about America, or if you're a human who cares about humanity, either way, this empire, if you're not part of this anointed oligarchy of a tiny percent of the population, it's really much doing you more harm 
than good, and it's threatening your the, your own your life and the life of your of your children and everybody you know with nuclear death uh, as they attempt to hold on to this. So uh, I'm I'm always happy to get to talk about these things, Ben, and you do a, a great job here. Uh, with taking in a lot of different information from different parts of the world and packaging it in a digestible way. So uh, I appreciate you having me back on here. Well, I couldn't agree more with you, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. That's obviously why. I mean, I always enjoy collaborating with you. I think we're doing work in a similar vein. And I appreciate everything that you do. And I would highly recommend everyone watching or listening to go check out Aaron's book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You should buy the book and then you should read the book and follow along in our series. In the description below, I have a link to the American Exception, Empire and the Deep State series that I'm co-hosting with Aaron. And we started with a theoretical discussion of imperialism and the deep state. And we're currently going through the history, going back to the creation of the US empire and talking about every single different US presidency leading up to today. So, I mean, Aaron is the go-to guy for people who want to know the history of the deep state. I mean, I've said this many times. I think Aaron is up there with Peter Dale Scott as the leading historians and scholars on the U.S. deep state. No one else comes close. And uh, Aaron, any other final things you want to plug before we conclude? No, that's it. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing out there. And I'm glad that you've got a loyal audience of people that are interested in these things. And I would also just say on a, on a personal level for people, uh, don't get overwhelmed in despair about these things, because I, I think that we do realize how powerless we are to do anything domestically in the United States. And that's related to this issue of, of empire. And so we need to be anti-imperialists. And if we want to fix American politics, we need to end the American empire. And uh, even though that's probably going to happen because of international events, uh, the more people that understand this domestically in the United States, the better for when we finally do have the opportunity to uh, move politics in a better direction. Well said. If people want to support Aaron's show, they can go to patreon.com slash American Exception. And I think with that, we'll probably wrap up here. So thanks a lot, Aaron. All right. Thanks, man. I'll see you soon. Yeah. And uh, of course, everyone should check out the Empire and Deep State series. We'll have another episode coming very soon. I'll see you all next time.